Hello and welcome to this download from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Mark Hudson, author of Titian, The Last Days. Mark is a journalist and a prize-winning author. He won the Thomas Cook Award for his travel book, Our Grandmother's Drums, and the NCR Award, the precursor of the Samuel Johnson Prize, for Coming Back Brockens, his account of a year and a mining village on the bleak east coast of Durham. His new book took him to the rather less austere setting of Venice, on the trail of Titian, the artist who many consider the finest painter of the Renaissance. Mark's book is not a conventional life, however. He places his own quest for Titian firmly in the narrative, and dares to ask questions that academic art historians might dismiss as trivial. The result is a very readable, highly unusual approach to the life and work of an artist who lived to be 90. I asked Mark to begin by telling me about Venice, the city where Titian spent most of his life. The book makes clear that the artist is quite hard to grasp in the city, though Mark left no stone unturned in trying. One of the, one of the reasons he's hard to grasp in Venice is because the, the, the tradition of Venetian artists was that, was that they worked for the many institutions in Venice which patronised artists, like obviously the church, the many churches, the, the, the noble families, and the, 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 the chari- great charitable brotherhoods which with the Scuole Grande, which in Titian's time were setting up magnificently endowed institutions with vast numbers of paintings. And, that the, and traditionally, the painters of Venice really occupied themselves with working for these institutions very lucratively. Mm. So if you're, going, if you're going to Venice, if you want to look at Tintoretto, you'll see immense rooms absolutely full of his stuff. Mm. I mean, I think it was Ruskin said, you cannot really appreciate Tintoretto without going to Venice. I think the same is true of Bellini. Bellini was Titian's great teacher. Tintoretto was Titian's successor. Those artists, you really can sort of read them as you walk around Venice. Titian, the, he was the first artist to really transcend Venice as a market. He, he got immensely wealthy patrons outside Venice. So a lot of his work was going out of Venice, wasn't it? He became too big for Venice very early in his career. And, and as a result of that, a lot of his greatest work isn't in Venice, or it's dotted around in funny places. I mean, there's maybe five really, really great Titian paintings in Venice. Whereas, you know, we've got a large number of them in London too, in Madrid, Florence, all these different places. Yeah. And I think even in Titian's lifetime, funnily enough, because he, but although he was the greatest artistic celebrity in Venice for most of his career, he was kind of neglected in a strange way because he was sending all the work outside the country. So people didn't really know what he was doing. So he was thought of as a kind of a sort of artist of the past, even when he was still alive. In a funny way, that still applies. He's a very elusive character. And to kind of get a grip on him in Venice, you really have to kind of let your imagination flow a bit. From the book, it's clear that Titian was quite a smart operator. He wasn't a sort of innocent genius, unaware of his own market value. And I was quite amused by his freelance approach to business, whereby he would start off a commission and then move on to another one, and um, much in the same way as uh, you know, contemporary builders do. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he had a business which he needed to keep going. I mean, the great difference between him and the artists of later centuries, or the artists of his time, and the next great period is that he didn't operate through dealers. Mm. You know, he had his own shop. I mean, the term bottega, the Italian for a workshop or studio, is, a, is, is the same as the word for a shop. So if you wanted to deal with him, you went straight to him. 
And the, the idea, you know, the idea of the alienated tragic artist in his garret, you know, which, which, which is, it still dominates our idea of what an artist is like, I suppose Van Gogh being the greatest example, who's kind of powerless because he's reliant on, will the dealer take my stuff? I mean, Titian wasn't like that. He had a, a thriving business. And like any, any freelance business, you have to have a kind of steady flow of work. So this did leave some of his clients absolutely exasperated. You know, threatening legal action, God knows what, to get, it, to get him to finally complete things, which sort of dragged on for years. He would start something in a great blast of energy to get the initial commission and the, few, the huge advance to get the thing started. Then he just sort of put it away for a couple of years, maybe years, while he went off and did other things. Yeah. He was juggling commissions from extremely wealthy, powerful, potentially dangerous people, not the sort of people, you know, dukes and emperors and popes. And he also had a, um, an obligation to the Venetian state. Quite early in his career, he was given a, a sanseria, which is a kind of government sinecure, a kind of pension, an annual, an, annual, an annual sum of money in return for doing paintings for official buildings. And he, he, he got this by pr promising a battle scene for the Duke's Doge's Palace, that magnificent building in Venice. It took him 20 years before he even started it. And then he only started it because they threatened that he, A, he would lose his sanseria, and B, he'd have to pay back every single penny he'd, be, he'd been paid. But I, mean, I think if you want to look for what really motivated Titian as a painter, it's A, ambition, pure material ambition, and B, perfectionism. He would not let a painting go until it was absolutely as good as he can get it. Mm. Now, w one thing which people who maybe don't know a great deal about art know about Titian is Titian and women and think of the Venus of Urbino, that very, very famous reclining nude. So what questions did you approach that area of Titian's output with? Well, I suppose the, I suppose the key one, it might seem slightly crass. I mean, it's just something that's occupied people, for critics and these art historians and romantics for centuries. Here's this bloke like anybody else, any other man, locked up in a room, locked up in a room, you know, sort of stuck in a room, hours and days on end with a be beautiful naked young woman, surrounded by, you know, voluptuous floozies of every stamp. Did he know them, as they used yeah. to say? And I think for in the maybe maybe the night, if you went back 150 years, you'd take it assume that Titian did what any man would do under those circumstances. Mm. Much more recently, but this has this has been looked at with a greater degree of skepticism. Um, I, just, I just wanted to, to, to look at that. Again, going back to the idea of the romantic artist. Yeah, the, the artist and his mistress. After they've made love, she's sprawled out on the bed. He paints her in the glow from the gas fire. They sick it. Or Toulouse-Lautrec. They paint paintings that are obviously relate to that idea. Hmm. Getting back to Titian's time, as I said, it's a business. If there's a, a nude woman at all, she's lying in a, almost like a warehouse industrial unit Mm. I mean, that's the equivalent idea. You know, this is a business, people wandering in and out the whole time. So it's hardly very intimate. And actually, when you, when you start to analyze the image of the, the Venus of Urbino, the further, the further you get away from the idea of uh, just one man and a beautiful young woman, firstly, the, the, the painting, the, the body of the woman was initially taken from a painting by, by, by his sometime friend and rival who died 30 years before, Giorgione. Mm. He just transposed that. And the head may have been taken from, from somebody else and sort of, you know, plonked on later. So these, these things are highly constructed. 
And I, really, every paint, almost every painting by Titian is as enigmatic and complex as that, has kind of issues of what the hell is going on. And I think that's what is so fascinating about an artist of that period. It's partly, partly the distance in time and the difference in culture Mm. means you really you really have to kind of readjust your focus in coming to these paintings but also the paintings themselves are inherently complex that they have this marvelous richness when i remember was years ago walking around the prado in, in madrid and just spending hours and hours and hours looking at these paintings and they're, they're like 19th they call it 19th century novels mm. you know you can really just go into the painting and kind of live in it because there's the space there's the kind of depth, the richness, the narrative, you know what I mean? The subtitle of the book is The Last Days. And yeah. what was it about those last days and those late paintings that made you want to sort of present the story from the perspective of, of, of Titian's final days? Titian in his last, in his, difficult to know quite when, but towards the end of his life, produced perhaps 10 or 12 paintings which really do certainly do appear to the modern eye to kind of take painting to somewhere it had never gone gone at the time. They're much more raw in treatment. Mm. They have a kind of they have a kind of modern look in the sense that they're not kind of hugely finished off with glowing varnishes. Mm. They have a raw, provisional look. Painting, I'm thinking of the paintings like the Pietà in the Academia in Venice, Flying of Marcius, or the Death of Action in the National Gallery. Mm. And I mean, one of the things that exercises art historians now is, was it, had he gone into some great final, last, tragic phase, you know, rather like Beethoven did with his late string quartets? Yes. Or, or did he just simply leave behind a load of paintings he never got around to finishing mm. that have this kind of really, really raw look for that reason? That was one, that was one thing, but these paint. I mean, if you want to look at an old master painting that doesn't look like an old master, that doesn't have that kind of sort of super gloss that you find, that looks quite modern. Yes. Those are the those are the ones I think you should you should go for. And it was the enigmatic quality of these paintings. What did he think he was doing? That really got me got me very curious. And there was also a story, possibly true, very certainly an element of truth in it that at the time of his death. His studio was, was robbed, but was looted just during the Great Plague epidemic of 1576, and a number of paintings taken. There was the idea that there might be more of these paintings that would kind of uh, fill in the missing pieces of the story. That I just kind of was a kind of um, a motif that drew me into the, drew me into the story. Mm. I mean, needless to say, trying to <laughs> find out the reality of all that is going to be exceptionally difficult. <laughs> At this remove mm. but, but that it was a kind of curiosity about that and the, the, the motif of this old man in his stu in his studio producing these these tragic enigmatic works and when i went to the house his, look at his house which is is not a museum or anything it's just an ordinary house and i was peering through the keyhole into the garden all this started to kind of crystallize as a kind of the central image of the book